0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. It's nice to see your beautiful faces and some not beautiful faces, but uh, it's good to uh, to see uh, you this morning, and I'm looking forward to this next season. It's it's isn't this weird? It's I think it's good to just acknowledge this whole last three months has been strange and unprecedented for us, and uh, every step to me has felt like navigating a fresh thing. I keep looking for books on how to pastor. A a church through a worldwide virus and there aren't any. So uh, we're just figuring this out as we go, but this is a new phase. I was talking to my wife last night. It was like, is tomorrow like a big day or not? Like, it seems like it should be a big day because we're allowed to have people in the building, but it's still not fully, you know, back to what we used to have. We've been having Sunday services for 10 years. We've been having two services for six years. Like, we're still not fully back to that. So I was like, is tomorrow a big day or not? I went to bed not knowing the answer to that question. I woke up this morning just feeling like maybe there was a slightly different question. The next season, however long it may last, for, for us in Pennsylvania, we call this the yellow phase, where we can have a couple people present. Whatever, however long that season, we, we shouldn't pigeonhole this to a day. You know, This morning is like, this is when everything clicks on. I just don't think that's the way it works. But this next phase, this next season, it is meaningful. It is important. I think it's important for us to receive like this gracious gift from God that we all for the last 90 days or so had to learn that it is possible to be a church even when you cannot gather regularly. It is possible to follow Jesus uh, even when there are restrictions and uh, things that hold us back and get down to what it really means to be a church. And so I don't want to ever lose those lessons. I don't want to ever lose those new understandings of what it means to follow Jesus. So it's not it has nothing to do with the sermon this morning. I just want to help us transition into this next phase. This morning I actually want to talk to you about leadership from 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, now we're in First Timothy, eventually we'll get to 2 Timothy, we'll spend a week or two looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus and Revelation eventually, but this morning I want to talk to you about leadership because leadership is important. Uh, leaders, here's why leadership is important. <clears throat> leaders in any segment of society, church leaders, educational leaders, political leaders, business leaders household family leaders, community leaders, they all have a few things. Number one, they have resources. Leaders are entrusted with resources. Leaders are also given authority and power. They're given authority to make decisions. They're given the power to bring those decisions into reality. Leaders are also given, and this is a sacred, heavy, heavy thing, leaders are given trust. People put their trust in their leaders, and good leadership engenders more trust. Bad leadership really damages trust, and I found that bad leadership damages trust not just in the relationship between that leader and the people that they're responsible to lead, but those people and every subject. To that person who is leading in a Christ-like way, the the impact or possibility for transformation to see the kingdom of heaven come to earth is almost unlimited, except for by that person's you know lifetime. Uh, So leadership is important, and this morning I want to talk to you about the qualities of a leader in the church. Specifically, this morning. We're going to be talking about elders. Next week, we're going to talk about deacons. I'm going to explain a little bit more about how elders and deacons relate to each other in a moment. But this morning, we're going to focus on the qualities of an elder from 1 Timothy 3. Now, I want to start off by telling you a story this morning. About 16 years ago, in 2004, I was a fresh, young, uh, brand-new pastor. Uh, I was an assistant pastor at a church in New York. I had only, actually at this point, I had only been a pastor for a couple days, and early, early on in this church, uh, the church was about 100 and, uh, I don't know, 125 people, and we had gotten a new lead pastor and a new assistant pastor myself in about two months. Total change of leadership. In one year, that church of about 125 grew to a church of about 300. That sounds exciting, (laughs) but I was there for it. It was tough. We had a situation very early on. I I was only on staff a few weeks, and the church was growing, and we were primarily growing through young people, young couples, young people fresh out of college, much like myself, were coming to the church. And I remember in particular this one uh, young man. He was a little bit older than me, but he was probably in his late 20s. He began attending our church and everyone loved him. He was just one of those people that like everyone is drawn to. He was very charismatic, not charismatic in the theological sense, but just like winsome, almost like charming might be the word you would use for him. He was uh, a little bit older than me, a little bit taller than me, A little bit better looking than me. I mean, he was a real jerk. (laughs) Everything, he was the best worship leader in the church. He was one of the best preachers in the church. And I was, you know, like, listen, and I actually really like this guy too. And that is not like me. I'm generally cynical when I meet a new person and I'm like, I'm going to not trust you until you give me a reason to trust you. Some people will say, I trust you until you give me a reason not to trust you. I'm the other way around. I already don't trust anyone. You got to give me a reason to trust you. Well, for some reason, my attitude toward this guy was totally different. I liked him the day he showed up. I said, this guy's great. We ought to have him lead worship. We ought to have him preach. We We ought to fast track him in leadership. And I wasn't the only one that felt that way. We all kind of felt that way. And so The church was growing rapidly among young adults, and here was this young single guy who could do it all, really. I mean, he could preach, lead the music, do everything. Everyone seemed to like him. All the young adults were kind of, you know, gathering around him, and we thought, we're going to have this guy plant a church. And we got him in the process to plant a church, and uh, everything was moving along well, and he and I needed to attend it. We had to go attend a conference in beautiful, exotic Cincinnati, Ohio. And we put uh, chili on everything when we were there. So we go to Cincinnati, we're at this conference together, and we were sharing a hotel room. And I almost never ran into him at the conference. We would, you know, we'd both end up in the room together at night, he'd sleep in his bed, and I'd sleep in my bed. And then we'd get up in the morning, we'd go our own separate ways. And I never ran into him at a seminar, or a session, or anything like that. So we'd go home, back to New York, and a couple of months pass, and, uh. I get a phone call, I believe it was on my day off, from the pastor. He needed to talk to me. And he told me this horrible, horrible story that a few months ago, when I and this man were in Cincinnati, while I was at the sessions, in the seminars, in the conference during the day, he was bringing women back to the hotel room, women that were on his team his church planting team. He had been gathering young women onto his team to plant a church, and he had been sleeping with several of them. And while I was at the conference, he was bringing them back to the hotel room, and I'll just let you fill in the blank there, but you understand what was happening. And so we had to confront him, and we did it immediately. Within 24 hours, we had to confront him. And he was... Totally unrepentant. Just did not, was not going to back down, was not going to back off. Didn't, I I think he understood that it was sin, but he was like, well, I can just, you know, move on from this. Uh, I won't do it again type thing. And we were like, no, this is beyond, I won't do it again. We need to slow everything down. We're not doing this church plant. We prescribed a two year process that we wanted to see him go through of slowing down, stepping back from leadership, simply participating in the life of the church. We were not asking him to leave the church. We were just saying, listen, you need to be part of the church before you can lead the church. We said, we, because of the scope of what's happened here, this isn't like you, uh, you know, had a bad weekend. This was a repeating, recurring thing. We feel like this needs to take two years. He essentially said, yeah, I'm not not waiting two years. And he left the church, and he went to another church. And he told them the story, painted us as the bad guys, they put him right into leadership. Which highlights a totally different issue in the church of how you can just jump around from church to church to church, and no one ever inquires about your history. Don't, pastors don't do the, the courtesy of calling each other and simply saying, tell me what exactly happened in this situation. Uh, this is something that we've done differently in wissan I have a very good relationship with almost every pastor in our neighborhood, and when we find out that people are hopping around from church to church, we call each other just to see what the story is, and I love that. And, and uh Pastor Pete at Crossroads and Pastor Dan at Mercy Gate, it used to be called Grace City, but now it's called Mercy Gate. You know, we have a good relationship just to see, you know, are people hopping around because they just are looking for something new or is there a deeper issue there? But no one did that research in this circumstance, no one did that background, and so he just got to go right into leadership at the next church and something else happened. It wasn't quite as bad, but. Crashed and burned there and moved on and totally lost track of this guy. Now, I share that story because what would have happened if we'd have just brushed that under the rug? What would have happened if we'd have just said, oh yeah, that's that's too bad? Well, don't do it again. Let's keep going with this church plant. Let's keep going. Let's have you leading us. Let's have you doing those things. What do you think would have happened to those women? that he was praying on. See, when I think about this story 16 years ago, it actually reminds me of what Timothy was put in Ephesus to deal with, which was bad leadership in the church. There, there are six men named specifically uh, in First and 2 Timothy. Hymenaeus, Alexander, Phagellus, Hermogenes, Philetus, and Demas. Six men, some of which were going around and... Uh, manipulating and taking advantage of women, maybe sexually, maybe not, we don't know for sure, but it says in 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy that he, they were going into homes and manipulating, it says, weak-willed women, and they were doing that. And so when I think of this story that happened in the church we were in 16 years ago, I think of this. Paul put Timothy in Ephesus, and he said, the leaders that are there, you need to stop them, and you need to get them out of leadership, and you need to put new people in leadership. Does that make sense? And 1 Timothy 3, which is what we're going to look at today, is Paul telling Timothy, these are the qualities of the new leaders that I want you to establish. I want you to clean house of all the unchristlike, ungodly leadership, and I want you to institute new leadership that has these qualities, and these are the qualities that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So, Before I read those, I just want to say one more thing really quickly. When we were on sabbatical about almost three years ago, I met a pastor who said this, and it's stuck with me ever since. Everybody wants a leader like Jesus. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's true no matter what sphere of society you're talking about. Everybody wants a leader like Jesus who is humble, who is uh, caring, who is loving, but who also has vision, who understands right from wrong, who has moral character. Everybody seems to want a leader like Jesus, and when you listen to people complain about leaders, every complaint is essentially saying, here's where they deviate from Jesus. This is, what they're, this is how they're not Christ-like. Even people, people don't use that language, of course, but that's what they're saying. So-and-so lies, so-and-so cheats. That's just them saying they're not like Jesus, right? So I think that that's true. When I say everybody wants a leader like Jesus, I think I mean everybody, believers and non-believers. You took look at Jesus' leadership, people are drawn to it. People are, it appeals to people. So 1 Timothy 3 tells us a little bit about how we can lead like Jesus. Let me read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity." But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So really quickly, who are we talking about here? What kind of person needs to meet these quali- uh, have these qualities? We're talking about an overseer or an elder. Uh, a few weeks ago, I explained to you what an elder does a little bit, and I told you that the New Testament uses the term elder, overseer, and shepherd or pastor pretty much synonymously. 1 Peter 5 does it, Acts chapter 20 does it. It says that uh, an, uh, an elder is a person who oversees and shepherds, or it'll say that uh, a Overseer should shepherd and uh, uh, I'm getting confused here eld or something. You know, I'm, I'm getting uh, pastor, overseer, and I got to look at my notes here elder, overseer, and pastor. Yes, these are all synonymous. So, elders oversee and shepherd, shepherds oversee and eld. That it's it all is mixed together in this. Like three part understanding. So, 1 Timothy 5 addresses this, Acts chapter 20 addresses this. The words are essentially interchangeable throughout the New Testament. So, in this passage, we are talking about the qualities of an elder. Next week, we'll get to the qualities of a deacon. So, what's the difference between a deacon and an elder? I know some of you are like, I'm about to learn some church terminology here. This is important because Biblically, elders and deacons, they're the ones that Jesus put in charge of the church, right? I mean, they're the ones that the apostles handed things off to. And so, you know, it's important because we have all these weird, like, leadership structures and things that happen in churches, and there's the lead visionary and the, you know, pastor of AV and stuff like that, which are, these are not, like, biblically, it's elder and deacon that oversee the the function and the life of the church. So, in Acts chapter 6 is really like where it helps us understand what elders do and what deacons do. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles are getting overwhelmed because they are supposed to be spending most of their day teaching the Word of God and praying for and with people, but they're also distributing a ton of food to widows in the community, and they say, you know what, here's what would be better. We need to develop an entirely new team of people, a group of people who will handle all of the physical needs like the distribution of food, the visiting of the sick, things like that, even the handling of money. We need to come up with an entirely new group of people. We'll call those deacons. And that's where Acts, Acts chapter six is where the, what we would call the diaconate is born. So uh, an elder's responsibility is primarily prayer and the ministry of the word. This is in Acts chapter six, verse four. Prayer and the ministry of the word whereas the deacons uh, serve by meeting physical needs like food distribution. So for instance, Becky Davis who oversees our food pantry is a deaconess, very fancy, it's on her business cards. She's a deaconess, she oversees the distribution of food. Visitation is a, is, is, would fit into like a deacon type responsibility. Ben, the distribution of benevolent funds, the stewarding of physical resources like money or our facilities. Jason Davis, who's our head deacon, oversees the stewarding of our building, and actually he oversees all of our deacons. Uh, and so uh, that's what a deacon does. That's distinct from what an elder does. Next week we'll talk about deacons. This week we're talking about elders. First Timothy 3 introduces four types of qualities, not duties. This is not the job description this is talking about their character, what type of person they should be. And really quickly before we get into this, 1 Timothy 3 is some nitty-gritty, raw, real, in-your-face stuff. I want you to know 1 Timothy 3 wasn't written to like, you know, Little House on the Prairie world. This was a primarily pagan culture. These people that were in the church, had, they had a background. They had done some stuff. This is more South Philly than Little House on the Prairie. Right, Sue? Okay. So, these were not squeaky clean, I've lived a clean life my whole life people. This was like radically saved, transformation, I'm a new creation in Christ type situation, okay? Everybody following that? These are people who probably used to worship idols, sacrifice, visit temple prostitutes, Jesus changed them, and this is the type of the quality of leader that Paul is calling. So there's four primary qualities or four categories of qualities here that all of the uh, 14 or 13 or 14 or so uh, descriptions fit into. Number one, an elder, or really, I would say any leader, but an elder needs to have a good reputation. Number two, they need to be faithful in their family. Number three, they need to have Christ-like character. Number four, they need to have gifting. So we're going to look at those four categories, reputation, family, character, and gifting. So, And it's not going to go necessarily line by line, but these are the four primary categories. All right, so in verse 2, it says an overseer or elder then must be above reproach. And then if you go to verse 7, it says the uh, overseer must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So both of those verses talk about the overseer or the elder being above reproach or not falling into reproach. What is reproach? That's a strange word. We don't necessarily use the word reproach nowadays. Reproach is kind of the, uh, the idea of that word is like they shouldn't have a bad reputation or they shouldn't be open to accusations. So they shouldn't be someone that they are credible accusations against them, or like publicly known uh, questionable character, right? Uh, Now, this is interesting because it doesn't mean that there can't be any accusations against them, because there were accusations against Jesus. Remember, they said Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard and a sinner, right? But those were unfounded accusations. Those were accusations that couldn't be proven. There was no evidence of those. And so uh, that's not to say that there aren't going to be people that rise up and say, I don't like this person. Yeah, he's he's bad. But once you do a little research, is there anything there? Is this person above reproach? Meaning uh, there's nothing really that can be dug up on them. There's nothing, there's no skeletons in the closet. There's nothing hidden. They're not going to fall into that. Uh, One of the ways that we apply this principle, at least in our denomination, our denomination level, uh, about five years ago, I was part of a team that identified, we we were searching for our new district superintendent. That would be like a bishop. Our district superintendent oversees like 80-some churches in eastern Pennsylvania. So I was on the team that was searching for a new one, and when we were interviewing them, we asked these two questions that were so weird to me, but, but I understand now why we had to ask. It was, an, it was a reproach question. The two questions were, uh, can we have a credit report, please? So we made them provide a credit report. We wanted to know like, what their finances were like. Do you, do you have a million dollars in debt? Are we going to find out you're part of a bad business deal or something like that? The other question we asked was, are you now or have you ever been part of a legal proceeding in which, uh, if it were to come out, would paint the denomination in a bad light? You know, have you ever been sued? And not to say that being sued is, necessar- is it's not guilt, but were you ever in that situation? And that doesn't disqualify the person, but we needed to know, is this something we're signing up for? You know, what, what were the circumstances of that situation? Were you, ever, did you ever, were you ever convicted of a crime or anything like that? We wanted to know, like, what's in your past, and then we have to make an assessment. Are we willing to roll with that or not? You know, if you have a speeding ticket, then that's fine, but if you were found, like, uh, negligent in a, in a previous church where there was an abuse situation, and that was not resolved, or you were found negligent, guilty and were removed from the pastorate and there were legal ramifications we need to know that and so that was a really that was a tough line of questioning thankfully everyone we asked was did not have that in their background but that's what it means to be above reproach like are are we going to find out something about you that we didn't know that's going to create an issue down the road and is it going to be credible so what Paul is saying is we want overseers, leaders in the church, elders, to be above reproach. We're not going to find out uh, something about you down the road that's going to leave you and the church open to public reproach or accusations. Does that make sense? I haven't been able to ask if that makes sense for 12 weeks because the camera doesn't talk back. So it's good, it's good to find out that things do or don't make sense. Uh, the elders or overseer regarding their reputation, they're supposed to have a good reputation in the community. Verse 7 says this, they should have uh, a good reputation with those outside of the church. You You know what you have to do in order to have a good reputation with those outside of the church? Talk to those outside of the church. You can't, like, bury your head in the church all the time. You actually have to be in the community, and this only comes with time. You can't hurry up and microwave a good reputation with the neighborhood. This takes time, it takes interactions, it takes opportunities uh, to, to speak with people. This comes with time and being in the community. Now, how do you get a good reputation? How do you get a good reputation in the community? I guess you start some sort of a marketing campaign for yourself, right? You put a sign up in, the y- in your yard, Jim, isn't he great? You know, like. That's that's how a business might do it. That's how uh, someone running for political office might do it. Proverbs 3 actually tells us how to get a good reputation. I love this. The key to a good reputation is not success, it is kindness and faithfulness. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Kindness and faithfulness will lead you to good repute. You want to have a good reputation? be kind in the community. Actually, Romans chapter 2 says God's kindness leads to repentance. So if you're kind, you may even see neighbors repenting of sin. How about faithfulness? You say you're going to do something and you do it. Or you say you're not going to do something and you don't do it. You're you're reliable, you're faithful. Those are the types of things that establish good reputation both inside and outside of the church. So the first quality of a spiritual leader or an elder overseer is their reputation. Now, if that wasn't fun enough, we're gonna look at their family. There's a whole second category of qualities for a leader or an elder, and it's their family and how their family functions. Verse two says this, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then if I skip down to verse 4, it says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So, the overseer must be both faithful in their marriage as well as faithful with their family. When it says the husband of one wife, what is that referring to? I, I used to think it's referring to either adultery Divorce or polygamy? Do they have like three wives or something like that? Well, polygamy was illegal here and very uncommon, so it probably isn't polygamy. There are already not really many people practicing polygamy at this point, so it's probably not polygamy. So what is this referring to? It's probably referring to adultery or divorce. And it's saying that a man who has an adulterous relationship is not meeting the qualities of a leader in the church. How does this apply to divorce and those who have been divorced? Now, as I read this entire list, it seems to me like the implied in every single qualification is, these things should not be happening while the person is in Christ, while the person is a Christian. Not in their path, I mean, one of them says, not addicted to wine. Does that mean that a person who 20 years ago was had an alcohol problem, but they've been walking faithfully with Jesus for 15 years and they've beat that? Does that mean they can never serve and lead? No. All of these qualifications are referring to, you know, of course, if this happened in your old life before Christ, that's under the blood. That's, that's moved on. But in your walk with Christ, have these been issues or have they not? So the way that I understand this passage is, if 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 you had a marriage that failed before you were walking with Jesus, that does not disqualify you from serving in leadership. If it has happened since you've been in Jesus, there are lots of other areas to serve and to to provide leadership, but elder is not one of them. I hope that makes sense. Now, uh, not only faithful in marriage, but faithful with family. Let me just back up really quickly and i want to continue with the faithful and marriage part so that divorce issue has been such a contentious issue in so many churches Uh, i know that there are churches who uh, i think a lot of these passages we've been looking at the last couple weeks people take them like and use them as baseball bats you know, when I talked about women in ministry a couple weeks ago, women in leadership, all it says is that men should serve as elders, but we, we somehow make that. Women can't serve communion, women can't do, do announcements, women can't lead worship, like that's not what it says, right? Here's what this is saying. The qualities of an elder would be husband of one wife. Somehow churches have made that, oh, and, and, and I've witnessed this with my own eyes, oh, well then you can't. You you have a divorce. You you've been divorced and remarried. You can't teach Sunday school, you can't serve communion, you can't do the announcements. Like that is not what this passage says. I mean, so I don't know what it is about us Christians that feel the need to find every opportunity to bind people instead of loose people. Um, I know that I want to be, I want to loose people as much as biblically possible, not, you know, I want to go up and to where the Bible speaks clearly, not take something the Bible is clear about and, like, use it to restrict them on stuff. Does that make sense? Okay, so it, all that is is a perspective change, just changing the perspective. Okay, let me move on to faithful with family. I love <laughs> verse 5. It just says this. The bar is so low here. Keeping his children under control. That's not even like a high bar, is it? You know, this is another area. Some people interpret this as their, their children have to be following Jesus. Man, I want our children to follow Jesus. I'm expecting my children to follow Jesus, but all it says is under control. <laughs> Whew. Six days a week, we nail that, you know, in my house. Under control just means that your, your kids aren't, bringing uh undue attention and reproach on your household and on the church it does not mean that they have to be bible scholars and bible quizzers and none of you know what bible quizzers are probably it does you know it, it it's under control okay listen as a parent you know you can't force your faith on your kids right you cannot make them believe what you believe it's impossible don't even try it it will only make things worse But your parenting is a demonstration of your leadership. And I love the reasoning here. It's a parenthetical statement in verse five, but he says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That sounds right to me. If you can't lead a small little group under your house, under your roof, how are you supposed to lead 100, 200, 300 people uh, that you can't spank? I found out recently... (laughs) Can't spank church people. (laughs) That changes everything. Uh, This passage shows me that the training ground for church leadership is not a Bible college or a seminary, it's the family. There's nothing in here about having a degree, there's nothing in here about having a diploma. It just says manage your household. I think God intends for leaders to learn how to lead in their families. That's more important. Degree aside, training aside, family, household. That's what we should be looking at to determine whether people are prepared for leadership. And so uh, if if I even go, this will not be on the screen, but if I look at verse 15 in the same chapter, I write to you, uh, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. That, he uses that same phrase, household. That's how Paul sees the church, as a household. Not a 501c3, not a nonprofit, not a community development organization. The household of God. So if you're going to lead the household of God, you should be able to lead your own household. Does that make sense? Okay, great. Now, verse 5 helps us understand uh, what this means. Because. Obviously, people get their kids under control in a variety of different ways, right? Uh, it says in verse 5, it says, how will a man, uh, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? The, the, the leader's role is to take care of, right? To take care. Now, depending on what the voice in your, how the voice in your head talks, see, I read that as like, oh, I'm going to take care of you. Oh, there's someone outside of the church making a ruckus. I'll take care of that. That's not what this means. This actually means to literally provide care for. And that's what the leader of a church or any family, community, whatever, is to take care, right? Uh, I'm going to brag on my oldest son a little bit real quick. This week, both Aiden and Emma finished uh, their school year. Emma finished kindergarten, so she thinks every school year is at home. And uh, Aiden finished fourth grade, and on the last day of fourth grade, Aiden won an award for most caring, most caring kid. Oh, hey, I won the Pinewood Derby when I was six. No clapping for me. Okay, finally. My dad made that car. Um, He won most caring, and then this is what it's like to be in the Rudd household, just you know, growing up a Rudd is kind of like growing up in the military without being in the military. I found out he was most caring, I got down in his face in a loving way and I said, and I put my finger in his chest and I said, that's what a leader does. Everything's about leadership in our household. I mean, it's annoying, I'm sure. Like who wants to be the leader and take out the trash? So we had to develop a definition for what leadership is because when he was a little younger, I asked him, what does a leader do? And he says, they tell everyone what to do. And as much as I like that definition, I, I knew that, that was we were going to have a little dictator on our hands. So I said, no, leaders take care of people. That's what leaders are supposed to do. Based on verse 5 here, leaders take care of people. And so anyone that feels, any Christian that feels called to leadership, I want you to understand you're not signing up to tell people what to do. You're signing up to take care of people. You're going to take care of people differently. Some people are going to take care by teaching. Some people are going to take care by distributing food. Some are going to take care by visiting the sick in the hospital. Some are going to take care by training you how to do evangelism. But it all boils down to taking care, not giving orders. The leader has to be the one that cares the most, and the ones that care the most should be the leaders. That's how a family, a church, a community, a business should all make their decisions who cares the most. They should be the ones leading. And when the leader is not the one who takes the most care, you can see it. And I've witnessed it in churches, families, businesses, neighborhoods, blocks. When the leader doesn't care, it, it has this like destructive effect. There are, there are denominations who shuffle pastors around year by year. The pastor doesn't decide where they're going to pastor and the church doesn't decide who they're going to call as a pastor. The denomination says, we want you at this church this year and then next year they put them in a new church. It's a contract system and they rotate year by year. That inevitably leads to a situation where the leader does not care. And it's almost impossible for churches to, no business would ever do that. No family would ever do that. All right. Let's look at the character of a leader. We're going nice and long today. Let's look at the character of a leader. I'm just going to summarize. This is verses 2 and 3 and 6. gives nine different types of descriptions of the character of an elder. First, they are prudent. To be prudent is to be sane. So, again, pretty low bar. (laughs) Sane, sensible, self-controlled. Okay? So... Uh, An elder should be prudent or sane. Respectable. That word means orderly, decent, and modest. I like this next one. Leaders must be hospitable. I want to take a moment and pause on that. Hospitable. I don't know about you. When I think of hospitable, I think of someone I walk into their home. First of all, I have to walk into their home. How else would I know they're hospitable, right? This is how I think. Let me go into their home. Oh, yes, it looks like they have a Pinterest board. So their house, you know, the, they got the fancy decorations on the wall, and that looks nice. And, oh, I smell apple pie. You're hospitable. That's what I think of when I think of hospitable. That is not what this passage set is, is talking about. That is not their idea of hospitality. It's not Pinterest, apple pie, soft music, crackling fire. The word hospitable uh, literally is philoxenos. It means loving strangers. You may have heard the word thrown around recently, xenophobia. The fear of people that are different than you. Xenophobia. Philozenia is love for people that are different than you. So listen, you can have the you know, hot apple pie, scented candle, crackling fire in the hearth, perfectly clean house, and still hate strangers. So you're not hospitable. On the flip... You can have, you know, a full litter box and the smell of cigarettes, but if you love strangers, you're hospitable. Does that make sense? Hospitality is not about creating the Hallmark store in your home. Hospitality is do you love people that are different than you? That's what the word means. And are you able to care for them? Which means hospitality is not limited to being practiced in your home. It's an attitude that you carry with you. If someone's struggling at the grocery store, you can tell that they maybe can't read or are having a hard time communicating. Can you help them? That's hospitality, right? New family moves into your neighborhood. Do you welcome them or do you watch? I, <laughs> we live in such a crazy world. Uh, we had people move in across the street from the church about a year and a half ago, and I went over to welcome them, and I could tell that they thought this was going to be something. They thought the big, husky, bearded white guy was coming to, this is my neighborhood. And that's not what I did, but I could see it on their face. As I was walking across the street, that's what they were expecting. And it didn't matter what I said, Welcome to the neighborhood. If you need, I'm the pastor of the church. If you need anything, let me know. We're glad you're here. This is, literally, that's what I said. Just in the back of their head, you could tell they were nervous. So, you know, I just was like, see ya. But it, I guess it takes multiple interactions like that to break down the barriers that people feel. All right. So uh, hospitality is an important character trait they must be sober or temperate. They can't be given to drunkenness. They can't drink too much. They can't be struggling with alcoholism while they're in leadership. That's something they need to be free of. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, just two, verse, two chapters later, Paul actually tells Timothy, have a little wine, because you have stomach issues. Timothy apparently had stomach issues. He Maybe had an ulcer or something like that because he, he was leading the church. Uh, and... and <laughs> Paul actually says, well, have a little wine. So this isn't a prohibition against all alcohol. It's just in moderation, a little bit. You know, you you can't go over the top with this. Um, You can't be violent, not brawling with people. You have to be gentle and fair and moderate. You must be peaceable, which is abstaining from fighting and non-combatant. You have to be content, not greedy. Uh, Later on in the same book, Paul tells Timothy, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. This is the context that came from. You had some church leaders that loved money. And he's saying, the new church leaders, get rid of those old ones. The new ones cannot love money. And then uh, finally, they have to be humble and mature in the faith, not a new convert. The reasoning being, a new convert that's placed in the leadership too quickly may get cocky and conceited, and fall into the same trap that Satan fell into, which was pride-based. Now, finally, fourth quality or fourth type of quality. The elder or overseer must have the ability to teach. This is in uh, verse 2. It says they should be able to teach. Now, I've been explaining this recently. The ability to teach is really the ability to instruct people how to think. An overseer, an elder, should be able to help people put together a biblical thought process. What is the process I go through? What are the, you know, guidelines and presuppositions that I start with to come to biblical conclusions? This does not mean they have to be able to stand up and preach on a Sunday morning because there's more than one way to teach, isn't there? It may mean leading a small group. It may mean one-on-one counseling is a form of teaching because you're helping people learn how to think. So there's more than one way to be able to teach. Uh, it does not have to be standing up in a pulpit and opening the Bible and, and preaching a sermon, leading a small group, one-on-one stuff, all qualifies here. Now, before I make, I'll make a transition into deacons next week, But really quickly, I want to say a couple things. I want to tie up just a few loose ends. It's very clear as you read through, the, to me at least, it's very clear as you read through chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, All of this is directed toward the men in the church. And actually when you move into the deacons, his language changes because when he gets to the deacons, he talks first about men, but then in verse 11 he talks about female deacons. So when he talks about deacons, he's like, the men deacons and the female deacons. But when he talks about elders, it's only ever the male elders. There's no, you know, list of qualifications for the female elders. So I understand this to be that it's the responsibility of men to lead in this position. Does that make sense? Now I understand that people have different beliefs and thoughts about that, but this is how I understand this. This is how John Eric understands this. This is how our church has always understood it. Um, I'm always open to listen to what people have to say, but I've studied this enough over the years. I've looked at it from every angle. I respect people that have a different a difference of opinion. I don't think it's a gospel issue, but I'm pretty settled on this. and I've, I've considered every angle. I haven't heard anything to change my mind about that. So I know that's... Uh, I just say stuff every week now that is tough. We use this passage every year when our nominating committee meets. Our nominating committee meets in December, and we start to look at who would we like to serve as elders in the new year? Who would we like to serve as deacons and treasurers and members at large? Who do we want to serve as leadership? So we always pull out this passage. This passage is the compass that we use to help us understand who would be qualified and have the qualities to lead. want to skip forward to chapter 5 real quick. This tells us a little bit more about the role of elders in a local church. This is not going to be on the screen. This is 1 Timothy five, 17. I'm almost done, 17 through 22. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder on the basis except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So it's actually telling you, if if there's an accusation against an elder, you need to be two or three witnesses. I'm not preparing you for anything, just so you know. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. See, people have read that verse out of context and think it applies to everyone. It's actually for the elders. The elders that continue in sin, not, not the visitor, not the new person, not the church member, but the elders who continue in sin should be rebuked publicly. Ay, ay, ay. That sounds tough. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias. No one gets to slide through this because they give more money to the church or they've been around a long time or they have a lot of family members without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. This is Paul saying, don't rush people into this. This is the problem we almost ran into at our previous church. We were probably getting a little close to hastily laying hands on a person. As much, as the, as much of a mess as it was to clean that up, it would have been ten times as worse if we'd continued down that path. And I'll just say it is better to do the hard work at the front end than to do it at the back end. It is better to stick closely to this passage and use this as the way that we identify and qualify leaders. It's, it's not going to totally preclude that no one's ever going to fall someday, but it's much easier to do the work on the front end and have the hard conversations on the front end, then afterwards when you have a trail of destruction, of hurt people, and you have to say, well, you know, we, didn't, we weren't really diligent about vetting our leaders. Does that make sense? So I want to tie it up with this. I mentioned at the beginning, everybody wants a leader like Jesus. Jesus meets all of these qualifications. Now you might say, well, Jesus wasn't married, but he is though, right? Right? Does Jesus have a bride? Is Jesus faithful to the bride? Is Jesus' bride always faithful to him? Right? So, actually, Jesus' relationship in, with the church is not an illustration for marriage. Marriage is the illustration for his relationship with the church. Marriage is the illustration, Jesus and the church is the substance. We are the shadow, our marriages are the shadow of the- his actual relationship with the church. Does that make sense? And so, Jesus knows how to be faithful in a family. Jesus knows how to be prudent. Jesus knows how to teach. Jesus had a, re- a good reputation you know, with outsiders, better reputation with outsiders than those in the religious community, by the, fa- by the way. Jesus meets these qualifications. Jesus is the elder of elders the capital e elder the chief i love this title for jesus the chief shepherd of the sheep and and when i hear that that phrase everybody wants a leader like jesus that just resonates with me so deeply yes i want someone that i know is going to be true i want someone that i know is going to be merciful I want someone that I know cares to the point of sacrificing. That's the type of leader that we want. I think in every area, in our churches, in our houses, don't you want your manager or your boss at work to be like that? Don't you want your block captain to be like that? Your politicians? (laughs) I can't even say that. I mean, don't, don't you want every leader to be like Jesus? Okay, well then the world's counting on us, I guess. Instead of us counting on the world to get their act together and be more like Jesus, they're counting on us. We owe the world an encounter with God, right? And so we're gonna have to be those people, making sure that we are conformed to the image of Jesus and then not backing away when he puts us into positions of influence and leadership. I know I went a little bit long today, I guess, having 25 people in the room got me carried away. Want to pray for us and then let you go. Uh, Thank you for watching online. Uh, Jesus, would you develop in us your image? I mean, that this we don't want to just try to check some lists, check some things off, check some boxes off a list in 1 Timothy 3. We want to actually present the image of you to the world. We want to be those leaders who are like Jesus. Instead of demanding other people do it, we will step into the gap here and provide that type of leadership in our area. So transform us in the areas where you've given us leadership responsibilities in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, our streets. Transform us to be the leaders like Jesus that everyone wants to see. I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com